0: Hello friends! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Charlie Walker. He's an explorer, writer, and public speaker. What happens when the Russian government catch you taking photos and writing articles shortly after a war breaks out? Very little that is good. Unfortunately, Charlie stumbled into precisely this situation, but thankfully he got out too, so he can tell us what happened. Expect to learn what it feels like to travel over 50,000 miles by bicycle, foot, horse, raft, ski, and dugout canoe, how close Charlie came to spending his life in a Russian prison, how long a triathlon needs to be in order for it to take four months to complete, why distinctions between European and Asian people makes no sense to anyone on the border, and much more. But now, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Charlie Walker. Charlie Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Talk to me about what drives somebody to do the things that
1: you have chosen to do as pursuits uh there's been a lot of different drivers at different points i guess over the course of my career to start off with i was i mean i i I don't think it's too i don't think i'm too ashamed to say that at the beginning i was kind of quite keen to try and sort of i don't know stamp my mark on the world a phrase i've used once before is uh a young man wanting to slay dragons, but I kind of grew up in the post-dragon era. Um, And I, you know, I wanted to sort of get out there and see the world, but there was definitely quite a dose of, uh, I guess, ego wound in, wrapped up in that. And I quite liked the sort of self image of the, I guess, the kind of thoughtful, grizzled explorer plodding through the I see wastes, you know, with only his mad mind for company. But thankfully, as the uh, as the last sort of, you know, 13 or so years have, have have gone by, I've become a little bit more considered. And it's nowadays, uh, I would say roughly 50 50 between wanting to get out and sort of challenge myself. Uh, physically in wild places, you know, to be in the wilderness or lesser known little, you know, seldom visited people and get some insight into, into their lives and their worlds. Um, and I guess the thing that draws all that together is just a strong sense of curiosity, which uh, has never waned. It's interesting to think about mm-hmm. what can
0: drive people to do the things that they want to do when in the beginning some of it might have been recognition or... Status or a desire for acclaim or respect from the people that you admire can take you a hell of a long way.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't, I think to be fair, my, my, my sort of my world or my sphere that how I imagined things going didn't quite stretch to acclaim or recognition. It was, uh, I mean, I wrote in my first book about going off during, I, I studied up in, in Newcastle where I think you are Correct. from or have studied. Yeah. yeah. And, in the summer holidays, I would scrape together the few pennies I had and, you know, I work in bars or putting up marquees or whatever all summer. And then at the end, I would have a few weeks where I could go off to somewhere obscure. And I quite liked when I came back that everyone had been, you know, partying all summer. And I'd been this just sort of (laughs) absence and uh, coming back and suddenly having a story to tell and something interesting to say. I don't think, I ever imagined that I would make a career out of any of this. And a career is is a sort of, you know, in inverted commas type term when you do something like this, because it's scraping together all sorts of different things. There's no kind of one single thing that I do. Um, so I, I guess it was <laughs> perhaps more vanity than a desire for recognition or anything else that, that sort of drove me to go out and, and sort of, you know, explore.
0: Yes. Given the dancing around of what it is that you do people might not be familiar how do you define what it is that you do are you an adventurer are you a, a global travels journalist what are you
1: um i would say i'm an adventure travel writer but that's three words which is a lot <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. so i guess to, i mean i used to allow myself to get into long drawn out protracted conversations or debates about the different meanings of the two words adventurer and explorer and i and i still believe frankly that the word explorer is something basically from a bygone age with the exception of scientists astronauts uh deep sea uh submersibles would that
0: be breaking new ground for you going to places that haven't yet
1: been seen Exactly. I mean, you, there, there is a case to argue that we're all exploring in some sense, because if you haven't been somewhere before, you are exploring it. But then I think that's just the verb rather than the adjective, the term explorer. That said, the other people who do similar things to me have for quite a while just used the word explorer. So I decided to stop fighting it. And I don't tend to self-identify as that, but I no longer quibble about it when people describe me as that. Um, but but in reality, what I do is go to places check things out, come back, write about it, speak about it, and work out what's next. What was that triathlon thing that you did? The triathlon was, uh, the the concept behind that was to travel the length of the Europe-Asia border, well, the perceived or supposed continental boundary between Europe and Asia, uh, to try and explore what that is, what that means, and if it has any relevance in the modern world brackets it doesn't um we all at school learned that there are seven continents and we kind of just grew up you know having taken that for granted we just imbibe that information yeah there's seven continents but there's not clearly you look at a map and antarctica is a continent australia is clearly a continent big i think the dictionary definition of continent is a Large contiguous landmass surrounded by a body of water. So, Africa is arguably a continent, although it's connected to Arabia, which is connected to Eurasia, as I call it. Um, so, Eurasia is very clearly one big continent with this sort of complicated, wiggly line through the middle of it. And I started looking into what that line, where that line came from, how it was drawn. And the first person to um bifurcate Europe from Asia was anaximander i think a an ancient greek geographer and philosopher 2600 years ago and he even back then it was this complicated medley of geographical features uh it was uh the azov sea the the manich depression the caspian sea the don river it was this real you know dog leg of messy features to divide europe from asia and that became important to people predominantly west of that line. And over the you know, ensuing 26 centuries, it meant different things to different people at different times, but often it was the divide between enlightenment and barbarism or democracy and despotism or Christianity and Islam, all these different things. But the the, the line that is today the sort of commonly accepted geographical border between Europe and Asia is, it was was uh, perceived by a, Conceived, rather, by a Swedish cartographer in the 17th century. And it's the Ural Mountains, the Ural River, the Caspian Sea, the, the Caucasus Mountains, and then the Black Sea. So, again, this weird combination of stuff. So I decided to travel the length of that border by human power. Um, so skiing the length of the Ural Mountain range, uh, the Ural River rises in the southern foothills of the Ural Mountains. So paddle down the length of the Ural River, which flows into the Caspian after 1,509 miles, uh, and then cycle from the mouth of the Caspian around the edge of the Caspian across the Caucasus Mountains along the Turkish Black Sea coast to Istanbul. And along the way, I wanted to ask people, what they thought about this border, whether they were aware that they lived on a border, whether they, if they did, whether they identified as European or Asian or Eurasian or both or neither, or just Kazakh or Russian or Turkish or Georgian or whatever. And uh, it was 5,200 miles and took eight months. And uh, by the end, unsurprisingly, I found that very little people cared about this continental divide
0: how many times did you cross backward and forward are you pretty pretty close to being able to sit on that line and wiggle down it
1: well on the river it was very easy because you're just on the river you are on the border you know one night uh we would i I was doing this with a with a with a friend one night we had camp in europe the next night we camp in asia it was just wherever we saw the first kind of decent sort of landing spot in this inflatable tandem kayak we bought in a siberian village um in the mountains, the technical border is the watershed of the Ural Mountains. So there we would pass back and forth across it, uh, you know, sometimes once a week, sometimes yeah, that, that we were three months in the mountains. Uh, so I, I guess we passed back and forth over it maybe a dozen times during that three month period. And then once we were cycling, we were always on, uh, let me think, we were on the Asian side of the border until we got down and crossed into Azerbaijan. Hmm. And so everything north of the Caucasus is technically Europe. And then south of that, you're into Asia. Um, and that was kind of interesting. We passed in, within geographical Europe. We passed through this area in Russia called Kalmykia, which is a um, it's one of the many places that Russia calls an autonomous republic. Uh, it's not autonomous, of course, but this place, uh, a predominantly Buddhist uh, sort of enclave within Russia. The people living there, the Kalmyks, uh, migrated from Mongolia about 450 years ago. Uh, they speak an archaic form of Mongolian. They are ethnically Mongolian. They speak, uh, sorry, they, they practice Buddhism. It's just not something you'd expect to find in what we term Europe. Next to that, you've got Dagestan, which is another part of Russia, which is um, predominantly uh, Muslim. And they've had a long sort of long running, low level Islamist insurgency. There's been, you know, it's often touted as the most dangerous place in Europe. And whenever someone goes through there, you know, for TV, they say, God, isn't this place edgy? But of course, we found it to be the friendliest place we visited on the on the entire journey. Um, So, yeah, that was a long answer to your Europe Asia crossing the border question. But uh, from Azerbaijan onwards, we were then in the in the Asian side of the border. Uh, And Georgia was the only place really where people seem to care about that concept of a border. Um, What do you uh, think
0: that's due to?
1: Quite a a few different reasons. I think historically, uh, Georgians have seen themselves as, um, I mean, it's a very ancient place. It converted in about 350 as a as a sort of uh, independent kingdom it converted to christianity so it was a very early convert to christianity and it lies within the kind of the wider realm of islam for want of a better term uh they are desperate to join the european union um i should think that will never happen because they are too important a kind of uh meeting point between different powers uh they yeah, they've got Turkey to one side, Russia to the north, Iran just across the border further south. They're in the Council of Europe, which has about 50 countries. And so every government building has a EU flag outside it because the Council of Europe and the EU flag are the same. Um, and I think they just see themselves as kind of uh, isolated. They. Even though much of a third or so of Russia is in Europe, they see Russia as being part of that kind of other block, maybe following the Asian tradition, and they want to be part of the, the European community. Um, so yeah, for quite, quite a few different reasons, it's 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 not entirely clear, and it's something I'm hoping to get back there at some point to look into further. But I think they just they also see themselves as as um, inheriting the Phoenician and then the Greek traditions from the ancient world. Uh, the, the Phoenician seafarers kind of settled the coast of Georgia. And so they see that as, as part of their heritage.
0: If Dagestan was one of the warmest places that you visited during that triathlon, which, I mean, it's a triathlon where you skied and both paddled in a kayak. So I guess it's definitely a, an upgraded or amended triathlon. What was one of the more dicey
1: places that you went to? um we while in uh georgia we accidentally <laughs> crossed the border into south ossetia which is a region of georgia that russia annexed in 2008 in a short five day war. It's one of the, um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, these two sort of breakaway republics. Uh, Russia invaded Georgia in the course of about five days. They bombed, uh, I mean, even the capital Tbilisi and the strategic sites around the capital. And uh, we, we were following Google Maps on a phone and it gave us this bit of advice uh, to get to where we wanted to go you've arrived at this road down some mountain valley path, uh, go up the road for about a mile, cross the river, and then head down the road on the other side. And then you'll soon be in this town. Uh, but at the bridge, there were police and they said the bridge is closed and they wouldn't explain why they were Georgian police. And they, they, they gave no reason. And during this journey, I'd been arrested in Russia probably f- three times, I think. Um, it's, in remote areas in Russia, in Russia, it's very hard not to get in trouble with the, the authorities, frankly, if you're a foreigner. Uh, being in remote areas is automatically qualifying you for suspicion. Oh, they um, think
0: that you're doing some sort of surveying, clandestine
1: bullshit. Exactly, as if you'd send a, a, a wanker on a pair of skis rather than <laughs> use a, a satellite. <laughs> but... Um, uh, yeah, we were kind of fed up with being stymied by the authorities, even though this time it was the Georgians. And so we just went half a mile back down the river, which was only ankle deep, pushed our bikes across. It was only 40 meters wide or something. Got up the bank on the other side. It was the height of summer, so the water was very low. Got up the bank on the other side, got onto the road we wanted to follow and started cycling. Happy that we would you know got it, got away with it. We'll be in that town later that afternoon for a hostel and a shower and a good feed. And in less than a minute, a military jeep sped up behind us, and this soldier jumped out, uh, and I noticed first the Russian flag on his arm. And it confused me, because the Russian border was, uh, I think, probably 30 or 50 miles north. And so I you know, thought, "Why? what are you doing here? And I asked him that, and he didn't like that as a question, and asked me, what are you doing here?
0: What are you here? doing here? Yeah, precisely.
1: Yeah. And then he said, this is South Ossetia. And it turned out on sort of a later uh, review of maps that we had crossed. There's a tiny little in the very southeast corner of South Ossetia. There's this tiny little promontory of land that sticks further south. And we're just if it's a finger, we had just crossed the tip of the fingernail, just at this tiny little area. And the river was the border. And, on, you know, the, the guy then pointed out that there were guard towers around us and barbed wire and everything that we hadn't noticed. Um, and so we were we were sort of you know, taken in for the night, put in a cell questioned, taken to court, everything like that. Um, so that was a little bit sketchy. Um, the journey the after about five hours of interrogation from Russian security officials, they then drove us to Shkinvali, the capital of South Ossetia, which is this sort of supposedly standalone um, state. But of course, it's entirely run by Russia. Um, but the South Ossetians were, if anything, more angsty and they the, the journey in the night we got stopped at one point some guy more or less tried to rob us while we we're in police custody which is quite unusual um and then in the cafe we were put in this sort of you know the cell was fine it was it was nothing too bad but then they hailed us interrogated us for hours and hours and hours the next day never fed us or anything like that and then finally, when we were in court, I complained when they said, is there anything you'd like to say? I said, yeah, we haven't been fed. And the judge got angry at the police and forced them to feed us. And we got a nice plate of uh, sort of Uzbek plov. Um, and then we after paying our fine handed back across the border to the Georgian authorities and carried on on our way. So that was probably the hairiest moment uh, sort of politically. But the the three month ski through the Urals, we, we were starting about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle on the Arctic coast in February, which is really cold. Um, So we had temperatures down to about minus 45, I think, um, during that ski, intense blizzards and winds, um, which pushes the wind chill down even further. Uh, There was a lot of flat light. It was hard to to sort of gauge avalanche risks at various points um, on our way through the Ural Mountains. And the maps we were working off were these old Soviet, um, sort of military you know, cartographic survey maps from the 1950s. So we were working off these kind of slightly approximated contour lines and suddenly you know, we'd just find ourselves clawing our way up a 60-degree slope. Uh, so that was all quite um, sketchy as well, I guess.
0: What was that place that you went to that you said is the most sparsely populated cold place on the planet? Was that part of the triathlon or was that the
1: no, that walking that- thing? That was this year. Um, oh, that was this so year. That's an area called Yakutia. Um, so the, the most sparsely populated country on Earth is Mongolia. And Mongolia has, and um, let me get this right, uh, three people, I believe, per square kilometer. <laughs> but Yakutia has three square kilometers per person. No um, way. And what? So so
0: what's Yakutia? Yakutia is a, a country all of its own?
1: Yeah, Yakutia, or, or as it's also known, Sakha Republic, or Republic of Sakha, is a, a an administrative region of Russia. Um, it's basically the same size as India. I think I worked out it's 94% the size of India, but there's only 1 million people. Um, India has 1.4 billion, I think, 1.3 billion. Yeah, so you've uh, got
0: an entire country nearly the size of India with the population of Newcastle city centre. Yes, yeah,
1: on a Friday night. Um, it's, it's, and most of it is relatively uninhabitable. Um, about half of it sits north of the Arctic circle. Where would this be on a map?
0: Let's say someone's looking at a map. Is it just run across the top of Russia?
1: If you go to, yeah, if you go to Beijing and then go about 2000 miles north, you're probably in the middle of Yakutia. Um, and it goes up to the north coast, but it's a huge uh, area of Russia. It sort of heads right down sort of close to Lake Baikal, which is in the middle of Siberia. Um, it's, but it's absolutely, it's the size of India, but it's up, tucked away in the northeast of Russia. There's only one more kind of district to the east of it, this place called Chukotka. And that's the peninsula part that kind of reaches out towards um, Alaska. Uh, so it's absolutely vast. And up there, the, you know, the, the coldest inhabited place on earth This city called Verkhoyansk is in Yakutia, just close to where I started this trek earlier this year. Um, And they had a temperature about 100 years ago recorded. And it was minus, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was minus 68.4 degrees centigrade Celsius. So really cold. Um, You you know, you don't want to be outdoors living in that much. Uh, But the average winter daily low temperatures in in much of it are below minus 40. It's really, really cold. And, yeah, that was a very different experience earlier this year in Russia, because when I was there in 2017, it was peacetime. But three days after I arrived this year, uh, peacetime ended. And, uh, well, to be fair to the Ukrainians, they would say peacetime ended in 2014 when Crimea was annexed. But uh, the rest of Ukraine was invaded uh, three days after I arrived. So the rest of the journey was a little bit dicey. What happened there? Uh, well, I spent the first two months hiking along this frozen river, starting from a little town in the middle of Yakutia, hiking north, uh, a couple of frozen rivers, in fact, up towards the Arctic coast. And it was really interesting. The reason I went was to go and sort of see and meet the people living there, see what their lives are like. Uh, a lot of the people there are, in fact, the majority of people there are ethnically indigenous Siberians. So they've lived in the area for hundreds of years and have survived sort of. Pre, pre the Russian um, colonization of the area uh, about 400 years ago. They, they, you know, they survived by hunting, by herding, by living often semi-nomadic lifestyles in this incredibly harsh, sort of inhospitable part of the world. But there are still people living, to a greater or lesser extent, somewhat traditional lifestyles, or a kind of a combination of the sort of soviet communist uh, enforced way of life with the uh, the previous ways of existing um, so i wanted to go and see meet these people and that's what i did for the first two months I had a really interesting time i would spend about a week out in the wilderness hiking along camping in my tent temperatures down to nearly minus 50 and then once a week i would stop into a village and meet interesting people and learn about their lives but after about three weeks, I was um, I was taken into a police station in the, the only one town along my whole route from the start to the finish. There was one town in the middle.
0: How long was the route going to be in terms of time?
1: Uh, two months. And um, oh, and
0: you'd already done two months, so you must have been nearly finished. No, no.
1: So after about one month, halfway along, right. I yep. I was I was taken in by the police, and questioned and accused of uh, committing journalism while traveling on a tourist visa and asking people provocative questions about Ukraine. And there was this long sort of back and forth questioning, you know, interrogation process. And at the end of which I realized, well, they're, they're going to fine me to, uh, 2,000 rubles, which is about 20 pounds. So not um, actually in the course of the previous month that had gone from being worth about 20 pounds to being about four pounds. I was about to <laughs> say again, yeah, the
0: hyperinflation would have made, given you a great exchange
1: rate. Well, I would have if uh, all bank cards hadn't stopped working sometime earlier. So I was just on the cash that I'd taken with me by this point. Um, but uh, I realized that I could pay this fine and then just get out into the wilderness and carry on. They weren't going to hassle me after that. At least these two policemen, the only two. in. Were you on your own for this trip, by the way? Yes. Yeah, just me. Okay, um, and so I so I'd left them, carried on walking, got up to the coast, spent the final two weeks walking along the frozen Arctic sea ice. Which was absolutely beautiful—just this huge expanse of whiteness stretching out to the northern horizon—and there were um, aurora borealis playing over the sky at night. Incredible starscapes. It, it was really sort of sublime, serene. But then I reached my final town, this uh, this port town called Tixi, which used to have about fifteen thousand people, I think, during the sort of Soviet heyday. And as it turned out, more than half the people there uh, are military personnel. Anyway, once I arrived in Tixie, it didn't take long for the police to um, to arrest me once again, question me once again. And this time I was accused of the same things, but with the added accusation or allegation of uh, photographing military sites. Uh, so I was, I was taken to court once again. It's a bit of a sort of kangaroo court sham trial late at night, um, found guilty. And I thought I was... They told me that I was going to be banned from Russia for five years. I'd have to pay a 50 pound fine this time and I would have to leave the country. And so I thought that I would fly back down to Yakutsk, the capital city of the region that I'd flown into, get a flight out the country and and be done with it. But uh, it turns out that I was escorted by a a marshal down to Yakutsk uh, and then another one picked me up at the airport in Yakutsk, took me to a detention center and I was locked up for the next uh, month. Until finally, I was deported. So it was all quite a. The, the thing that worried me most is I never knew. I was never told how long I would be locked up. They said, "You're here until we deport you," and I said, "When's that?" And they said, "Oh, we don't know. There's paperwork." Um, but then, so I launched. I lodged an appeal. I managed to hire a local lawyer, and uh, the appeal was immediately rejected, just out of hand. They said that my uh, my, my charges were too serious and had a political nature to them. Uh, So they they were accusing me of being a journalist, asking provocative questions about Ukraine and photographing military sites. But you put all those together and you've essentially got through the Russian state's uh, perspective, uh, a foreign journalist getting ready to spread stories about the Russian military that run counter to the state's official narrative. And they introduced in early March, about a week after the invasion of Ukraine, a new law with a sentence of up to 15 years for just that. So while I was in there, I was thinking, you know, any minute they might just take me back to court, try me again with this sort of criminal charge. And I could be here until I'm nearly 50. Um, So it was a it was a pretty hair raising time, mostly, frankly, boring, frustrating, uh, enraging. You know, I've never really been prone to uh, a hot temper. But while I was in there, I found myself having sort of irrational fits of rage. At one point they dragged me out of the cell in handcuffs and, and suddenly I was just um, thrust in front of a uh, TV camera and I was interviewed for state TV news. They just threw all the same accusations at me as the police had in court. Um, so that felt like I was being kind of prepared or, or run through the court public opinion and that things could get really quite bad after that. Um, Brittany Griner, the American basketball player, she's still in Russia. She's been in, uh, in prison for a i think about 120 days four months more perhaps five maybe closer to six months now actually um and there's uh british uh people who have been detained in sort of around uh, mariupol and they've all been given territories of donetsk and lugansk uh the death sentence can apply so they've been sentenced to death presumably uh two of Two or three of them now and i think two more are about to follow along with a swede and a croatian um presumably with a view I, I i think and hope that they won't be executed they'll probably be um sort of used or bargained for prisoner swaps um but there was just while i was on the inside while i was in the prison there was just always hanging over me the possibility that they're going to use me make an example of me and i could spend uh, months or even years in this place so frankly the fact that i'm out now is is uh I, I do marvel at it every few days uh how lucky i've been to actually be released
0: yeah it seems like a roll of the dice i'm going to guess that some of the people that were detained were detained for probably no more or maybe even less than what you were detained for and they're still there and now potentially facing the death penalty except they will happen to be in a, a different area with a different code and the wrong judge and the wrong inspector or whatever
1: Well, the the folks who are being given the death penalty, they they were charged with uh, being mercenaries and uh, sort of partaking in a foreign war, as the Russians see it. it. A little bit worse. Yeah, so they were fighting with the Ukrainian army. But one of them had been uh, in the Ukrainian special forces, I think for several years already, and is uh, also a Ukrainian citizen. But they've just thrown the book at him because he's also got UK citizenship. But Brittany Griner, she just had, or allegedly, I mean, there's no evidence that we know of, allegedly, she just had a a vape cartridge with trace amounts of hash or cbd oil or something like that uh and she's you know she's been in prison for the best part of half a year so that's more trivial she got frankly, sentenced
0: it. to 15 years it was uh nine
1: years i think it was well, maybe maybe,
0: um, maybe it was nine but i think they wanted nine and a half that was it yeah they, right. they wanted nine well, she's and done half, half. <laughs> yeah exactly um
1: yeah that was just last week i think um we, I, learned,
0: I, we learned we uh, learned about Dubai has a particularly strict drugs policy. And this guy flew from Las Vegas to Dubai and had had some THC in something while he was in Vegas, got pancreatitis in Dubai. And then when they did a a urine test of him, he was found to have trace amounts of THC in his urine, and that constitutes possession in Dubai. (sighs)
1: I don't even know what to say about that. That's uh, wild, and that seems like that's largely just yeah, you know, it's just shitty luck. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. So go take me back. Like you get you get taken in. Who, in their right mind, when Russia has just invaded the Ukraine, is helping a British journalist who was dicking about taking photos and writing stuff for a, a laugh, and because that's what he likes to do. Who? Who was prepared to give you any assistance? Why would they?
1: Um, frankly, there, there's not really many diplomatic levers remaining between Britain and Russia. Um, but they they tried to help where they could. They were also six time zones away in Moscow, so that, there was that. Um, I had a local friend who, uh, you know, bought some books to the prison for me to read. That was, that was very kind of her, or him. Um, and... Uh, the, the lawyer that I hired was just a local lawyer who was prepared to do that for the several hundred dollars that he was paid to do it. But his job was basically just to take my case, present it to the court, have it rejected. And that was more or less the end of it. Um, I believe he did help or certainly tried to expedite the movement of papers from the court system up in this port city on the north, or port town on the north, where I was arrested down to the capital where I was being held, which uh, sped things up a little bit. Any uh, one further day of delay for the papers not getting there apparently would have led to me not being deported at that time. They only deport people at certain times. Uh, so I was deported in late May, and the next window was going to be late July, so that would have been another two months already. And had I been there for another two months, as the situation continued to deteriorate in Ukraine, as the British and Russian relationship continued to disintegrate too, um, there's, I think, a good chance, had I been there another two months, that the my case would have been sort of picked up by the authorities. They wouldn't and my, have wanted to release you. You would have been more it, valuable to them. Exactly. I would have been retried with a criminal charge for either uh, that, that um, fake news charge that they brought in, or just simply uh, espionage, because they said I was creeping around in in remote areas where where you're not really meant to be, and they said I was photographing military sites.
0: So you're not going to go back to Russia anytime oh, soon. I'm going. To- well, I
1: can't. I can't for the next five years. Uh, but I. I mean, I would love to go back to Russia. I, I. I have a lot of affection for the place and for the vast majority of the people I've met in Russia who, uh, and there are, of course, plenty of exceptions to this, people who are zealously in favour of everything that's happening, not just outwardly, but also inwardly. Um, but there are lots of people who are just essentially victims and prisoners of their own regime. And this doesn't mean that their lives are being torn up, being separated, but it does mean that they aren't free to, to speak, to say what they think, to write, to publish what they think, to protest or anything like that. So I, I do hope that Russia sees... Uh, reform or revolution frankly in in my lifetime and i do get to go back but until that day i I wouldn't be sensible or safe to do so how culpable do you (laughs) think citizens are for
0: being complicit convinced perhaps by malicious ideas and ideologies as a part of a regime that they don't know anything else
1: but that It's a really good question. I think that's um, one of the most interesting, difficult and important questions that there is at the moment. And I've I've wrestled with this quite a lot and I don't have any uh, definitive answer for it. I go through phases of feeling and thinking different things. But broadly speaking, um, plenty of people in Russia are just completely sold on the propaganda they've been fed they genuinely think that the ukrainian uh, leadership and governance is fascistic that they are neo-nazis um you only have to watch you know 10 20 minutes of state tv news in russia to to just get just the level of bullshit that they're being fed now that there, there is um There is censorship, so it is hard to access uh, external media or news. Basically, all the independent media has been shut down. There are a few remaining, but they are only remaining because they are towing the government line. Um, But it is still possible, or at least it was when I left, and I believe it is, it is still possible to get to visit quite a lot of foreign news sites. Um, But they might not be in russians they probably aren't understandable to the vast majority of people outside russia and i i i think the censorship on external websites has been uh, a lot more rigorous on uh, russian language outlets so there are there are plenty of people in russia who know what they're being told is a lie but can't do anything about it and frankly stand to gain nothing and really achieve nothing by speaking up you know all they'll do is endanger their themselves their families um and they'll just bring the wrath of the state down on them uh there are people who are cynically exploiting the situation you only have to see the little clips put onto twitter from some of the main panel discussions on uh, russia one the main news channel to see that some people are just you know tub thumping they're full of shit and are just happily uh repeating parroting anything that putin or his propaganda machine says so it's 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 tricky this question i suppose is coming up most often with regard to you know to international sports tournaments so should russian competitors be allowed to compete uh, they were banned from uh, russians and belarusians i think were banned from wimbledon but aren't from the Cincinnati Open in Ohio at the moment. Um, there was a story today: two Russian, I believe two Russian female tennis players were having a match, and then a spectator who had a Ukrainian flag draped around her was uh, ordered by the tournament to remove it because one of the players complained. Now, people who seem to show and op- Russians abroad who seem to show an open prejudice against Ukraine. I think that's a problem. And I don't think that there's uh, an excuse for that because they don't have to say anything.
0: Especially if you're in the middle
1: of a tennis match. Well, exactly. Um, And so there's that there's there's saying nothing is very different to saying something. And I don't think we should condemn people for an absence of protest where it's so dangerous to protest. That said, the longer the war goes on and the more it starts to feel like the only way for the war to end is through a vast popular uprising in Russia for which there isn't the appetite. You, there, that's the, what you think one of the
0: solutions or one of the routes out of this current conflict is is for the war to be won from within Russia itself?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's only three, I suppose. One is uh, some sort of... Uh, treaty essentially concessions from ukraine giving russia what it's taken and calling it a day politically i don't see that happening or at least not for a long while there is still the appetite in ukraine to carry on fighting the zelensky does still seem to have the support of the majority of the country to not concede to russia um the other would be well the other two would be ukraine winning or losing the war i.e ukraine being entirely annexed by russia or Russia being entirely repelled from Ukraine, but that would probably, as things stand at the moment, have to include the Crimean Peninsula as well. I don't see that happening, uh, or not f- again, not anytime soon. The saddest thing about this war is it looks set to grind on for months and potentially even years. But the only other option I, I see, short of things escalating to some sort of you know, nuclear hellscape, is, is the people of Russia turning on their government, rising up, but. And there are, there are plenty of people in Russia who want that to happen, but not enough, in my opinion. I think that lots of people in Russia, predominantly older people and people uh, away from the more cosmopolitan urban centers, where I think there's a little bit more awareness of and access to foreign media, um, people away from those places and older people support the war and support Putin. And Putin is still seen as the essentially the savior who brought stability to Russia after the crazed kind of kleptocracy of the 1990s after the soviet union was uh dissolved um there was just that crazy period where all the oligarchs everything was just robbed people grabbed whatever they could they sold off whatever they could and uh it was around about the time putin came into power that that's sort of lessened. That's not to say that Putin and his cronies haven't continued, you know, plundering the country as, as much as they can. And various estimates of Putin's private wealth stretch out to about the two hundred billion dollar mark. Um, although he can't really take that away with him. The minute he's out of office, he's 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 probably dead. Um, so that's a really long, rambling, and con- self-contradictory answer to your question. And the simple answer is, I really, I just, I don't have a perfect answer to that question. But I I do want people to think about it and discuss it. More because I think it's really important, I do worry about the sort of rise and spread of Russophobia, um because a lot of people aren't culpable; they don't have a say over what happens, and the incredible crackdown on the early um, sort of uh, protests that were went right across the country in the first few days of the war. But within a week, about fifteen thousand people have been arrested, many of whom were thrown in prison. So protest in a in a state that has quite such a huge police and military presence is nigh on impossible.
0: It's kind of the difference between the art and the artist thing, right? That you have a population and then you have populists and then you have the politicians that are controlling them. And I think that, it, yeah, it, it does suck. It, it's unfortunate that Russians are being tarred with a brush <clears> that they perhaps didn't choose. That their government has put in place for them and yeah it's kind of like what you were talking about to do with sports athletes have come before in the russian um athletics federation and they've been doping which means that now in future you don't get to play anymore even if you're clean i don't think that any of the russian athletes are clean i think that this is the sort of thing that's going to be continuing in any case my point being There is something that feels unfair about that, but you have to draw a line at some point and you have to say, look, the difference between this being uh, individual and this being systemic, and even if it means that out of 100 athletes, 10 of them might be clean or out of 100 population people, 10 of them might be pro-Putin or whatever, um, it is very, very difficult. And I think that's where the the nuance sort of comes in.
1: Sport, I think, raises some really interesting different examples because... Uh, So tennis is a good example because you don't really play tennis outside of the Olympics, I think. You don't really play tennis for your country. There's also that, uh, is it the Davis Cup, Europe versus America, but you don't play tennis for your country. You play as an individual. It's the same with golf predominantly, Um, but a football team or a uh, Olympic uh, squad that's a bit different, and I, you know, I think it's right that, for example, the the UEFA final was taken away from Russia pretty much as soon as the invasion happened. It also wasn't feasible from a security perspective to get all those many, probably tens of thousands of people into Russia for that game, anyway. So it was a bit of a no-brainer. But if you are in a team that is flying the Russian flag and sort of, you know, that I suppose if you're if you're uh, having the anthem played for you upon victory. I mean, the, the national anthems aren't played at the end of a tournament in Wimbledon, for example. Uh, when Nadal wins, they don't play at the Spanish national anthem. On the once every 80 years that a Brit wins or an English or a Scottish person wins, you don't get that anthem because it's individuals playing. But a football team is a very different idea. And the Olympics is the same because the Olympics is all about well, supposedly, I guess international cohesion, but it's about countries competing with each other on the on the global stage. Um, so, sports does have those differing kind of examples, and and again, it's it's sometimes difficult to draw the line. But I suppose if you are a team wearing the flag, having the anthem, then you stand for that country, and to compete in international sports should be a privilege. And I don't think uh countries, for example, China with its awful human rights record, I don't think they should have been allowed to host the Winter Olympics, let alone arguably compete at the Winter Olympics. Although if you start ticking off all the dictatorships and autocracies and people with bad human rights records, the Olympics is going to start looking like um well, kind of the, you know, EU games or something. Sparse, like that. Sparse. Sparse yeah. to say the least, I think.
0: So given yeah. let's say that you're doing these long trips. I mean you've done walking to the northernmost points of a bunch of different places, cycling around tons of places. How do you renormalize coming back to everyday life after you've been away on these trips? You mentioned before that you, during your time at uni or whatever, would come back and kind of have this new uh, viewpoint that you would have been absent, that you would have done something that was different. But now, I mean, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got, I don't know, it's, you're coming back to a very different sort of world. You have changed an awful lot, and yet the world has continued the same. How do you renormalize?
1: Uh, it's There's no sort of one way, I suppose. It's different every time. And frankly, broadly speaking, it gets easier every time I go back. And, and it depends a lot on how long you've been away. So my journeys have varied from two months to four and a half years. And coming back after four and a half years, that's odd, because your life has become whatever it is that you're doing for four and a half years yeah constantly moving on the road for four and a half years but going away for two or three months is it's a fair old amount of time the thing that's most different when i come back is not the fact that i'm back home or back in the uk it's the fact that i'm no longer waking up in a tent each morning and and, and hiking or cycling or kayaking or whatever it is so it's the i guess it's that change from uh movement to just well no longer flux you're just you're in the same spot it's that uh standing still and Do you feel comfortable doing bit. that at first, I get a bit sort of you know itchy so when I got back from uh Russia um I arrived at uh about six in the morning at Heathrow um my girlfriend and an uncle came to pick me up uh, we had breakfast she went to work I came home and I just felt i mean i I hadn't really slept but I suddenly felt just kind of you know stir crazy in the flat so i went out for a run but i had been in a prison cell for the last month so my, my, i didn't have shit for legs so i ran about three miles and then was limping and just had to sort of sadly limp back home <laughs> and start unpacking um so there is that sort of first sense of almost claustrophobia but i do find that starts to wear off quicker and there's always plenty to be getting back on with normally coming back from a journey is so busy i've got uh, i mean sadly lots of emails to answer lots of you know friends to catch up with you just kind of you rush back into normal life and the first day might be a bit claustrophobic and a bit disorientating um and then that discombobulation dies away and after another couple of weeks suddenly you might kind of go oh wow i'm just that quickly back into a much more sedentary lifestyle and that's when you start to think right well what's next and then you start focusing your attention on whatever is next and uh, and um that's a good distraction how do you commit to something which
0: is going to take four and a half years to do
1: that was relatively straightforward, strangely straightforward, um, largely because I was 22 at the time. I was 21 when I decided to do it, I think. And I had no ties, really. Um, I just had my first job, and so I was saving a little bit of money, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do forever. And um, I, I was, a, I think, I mean, I was young, and I was quite naive, and I was able to just make that rash decision. And as I said earlier, it was that kind of, you know, almost wanting to essentially a Homeric boast, wanting to do something big and bold and, and brash and and sort of, you know, sl- slay a dragon in my own metaphorical sense. So that was actually quite straightforward. I, I made the decision. I was drunk at the time, admittedly, on uh, some Mongolian vodka in a forest in Siberia um, by a little campfire uh that's a longer story that i don't think we've got time for now um but i made that decision i drew some wiggly lines on a little um in the back of a lonely planet they had those tiny little world maps and i kind of squiggled over it i woke up in the morning looked at it and thought right let's do that um and then just about a year later set off and got going and the main thing about that journey is i didn't really prepare anything i didn't train i just saved a bit of money i got a tent an old bicycle and uh some pannier bags saddle bags to carry everything and when i was ready i just set off and uh, it was kind of as simple as that i suppose giving yourself a a start date and telling people about what you're going to do is is a bit of a hack because um if you're someone like me who will be embarrassed to back down from something they said they'll do you're then in some sense committed um and that seemed to work for me on on that occasion and on several since then
0: was that a specialist bike of some kind? Did it have any important attributes that helped you to survive for several thousand miles?
1: Nope. Heavy steel frame, um, no suspension. Uh, it would have cost, I think, about three or four hundred pounds new. I got it secondhand on eBay for about a hundred pounds. Um, I put big on seat. Rat. Big seat, big uh, seat. I wrote a, a letter a handwritten letter to a saddle maker called Brooks. Um, They make very beautiful leather saddles. They've been around for about 150 years. They're based in Oxford or Oxfordshire, I think. Um, And they're really expensive. Well, I mean, they're not that expensive. They're about 150 pounds, but that's more than I had for even a bike. Um, and they, over time, they sort of contour and mold to your ass. And so they fit. Uh, so I didn't have padded shorts. I, I cycled without padded shorts. I just wore, you know, boxer shorts and shorts or trousers. Uh, but I wrote them a letter saying, I'm going off to do this thing. I'm going to raise a bit of money for charity while I do it. I'm going to cycle 40 odd thousand miles. It'll take about four years. Um, and at the end I said, I honestly think I can say that I'm speaking from my ass when I say, thank you very much. And they said they get hundreds of requests every month. Um, but due to that one little kind of throwaway cheeky line, they said, yeah, here you go, here's a saddle. Um, so that was perhaps the most sort of specialist part of the bike, was just a saddle. Um, 40,000
0: 40, miles?
1: Yeah, 43 or 44, I think, yeah.
0: You must be in the top thousand people on the planet in terms of how far you've travelled on a bicycle. It's you and it's professional cyclists and that's it. Mm, well...
1: I mean, there are many thousands of professional cyclists. Yeah, so, fair point. I mean, okay, I'm, top. I might come in the top sort of, you know, 50,000 yeah, times. Like. but that's still um, an awful lot. And of
0: non-professional cyclists, probably easily within the top thousand. People that aren't doing it for the pursuit of the sport, even the amateurs and stuff like that. I mean, who chooses to go and do that far just because adventure?
1: Yeah, I mean, the bicycle is a, a really good means to an end when it comes to adventure because you can travel for – nothing for free all you need is is food to fuel you um because you you're always in the places in between you get to see you get to really see a place in in a in a really good depth um i suppose walking is is one level further um but you can still cover comfortably 60 to 100 miles a day and have time besides to see people meet people rather see things learn things whatever uh you can sleep for free in anywhere in a tent you just pull over find a little bit of woodland or in the desert or in the mountains wherever you are you just find some little space put up your tent so you can travel for basically nothing um for a really long distance at a pace that is really conducive to seeing the places that you are and and sort of scratching that bit deeper beneath the surface. And you're not just jetting through places as you would on a train or a plane or a car or a motorbike, even uh, because you are traveling slowly enough to force you to stop in lots of places, the villages uh, between the towns that other people might visit if they were just on a shorter tour.
0: But not so slowly as if you were perhaps walking that you would never be able to get from one place to another quite so quickly and be able to see as much.
1: Exactly. I mean, there was, there's a, a Scottish guy called Mark Beaumont who cycled 18,000 miles around the world in 78 and a half days, I think a few years back. And he has the record for the, but I mean, he was cycling two, 280 odd miles a day, um, with, a uh, yeah, you know, support crew. It's a very different type of experience to what I was aiming at. And I, the, the bike was just the means to the end for me. The end was to, was to, to experience things to see, to do, to learn. How did you find yourself changed after that? I was browner, uh, (laughs) mostly from sort of dirt and grime rather than actually a suntan. I was hairier. Um, I had a sort of beard down to my nipples pretty much by the end of it. Um, I was very, very comfortable in my own company, potentially a little bit too much though at first, but I had spent just months and years by myself and had learned to be really comfortable by myself. But that was a struggle. It took ages to kind of get that balance right between feeling uh happily alone and feeling lonely um so I sp- that was probably the biggest difference i guess also i've just seen a lot more of the world and i i mean everyone is very changed between 22 and 27 which is the age i left and, and came back at so i was probably different in lots of ways um that's a slightly evasive answer, I guess. <laughs> I always wonder
0: about, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, how much of the wisdom that we like to attribute to our own efforts and our personal development and the bits of the world that we've seen and the conversations we've had and the introspection we've done, how much of that just comes along for the ride as a byproduct of getting older? I often well, think I've, that a good chunk of it is is maybe just you being having been around for another year or two years or five years.
1: Absolutely. And I think the you know for most people, thankfully, the longer they're around – the more confident they become within themselves, I mean this can lead to problems. You do get people who get a little bit too confident perhaps and uh, you know with age they're more likely to sort of you know a- attain positions of power with which they can you know cause problems um, but predominantly, I think we get more confident as we get older and confidence just kind of I think breeds a fuller understanding of your life 's experience and the sum of your life's experiences. And that's going to happen regardless of if you're cycling around the world for four years or you're working in an office, having day to day experiences and interactions with lots of different or the same people. We all grow and sort of broaden our horizons throughout time. And there's lots of different ways of doing that. And that's why I've I've never been someone to preach the idea that uh, everyone should travel and that travel is uniquely transformative. For me, it has proved to be very transformative. But again, as you suggest, potentially that's just the passage of time.
0: Mm. What places did you go to that were surprisingly enjoyable? You mentioned earlier on that Dagestan was a place that you went to that perhaps in advance you wouldn't have thought of as a, a bastion mm. of fun, warm welcomeness. Uh, well, any, any other places or places if people are thinking that they fancy going to do a trip that they should probably consider that wouldn't be on the typical
1: list? Iran is probably the most surprising place I've ever been to. Um, now, I assume that the majority of your listeners will be British and American and Brits and Americans don't exactly get an easy passage into Iran. You can't. Uh, this didn't used to be the case. The first Two times I went, you could travel independently, but now you need to be on a tour with a guide and a sort of prearranged itinerary so you can no longer quite experience it in the same way. But even so, Iran is, and I've been, I've probably spent about six months there in total, it remains the friendliest place I've ever been, the single friendliest place. I've been to about half the world's countries and Iran stands out. Head and shoulders above the rest for just the, the incredibly warm welcome. And these are people who know that I'm, uh, you know, just to sort of dispel the, slightly lazy stereotypes. Perhaps these are people who know that I'm not a Muslim potentially not even a practicing religious person. These are people who know that I come from a country that um, doesn't particularly want good things for, for theirs, or at least is politically at loggerheads with them. But um, Iran is a good example. I suppose this loops back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with with Russia and Russians. Iran is a great example that, many people aren't and don't feel represented by their governments and uh, their country is not just what we see or hear in the news. Um, A country is made up of, well, in Iran's case, about 80 million people. um, And there's a complete diversity within that. And the vast majority of people I met, the overwhelming majority, were incredibly warm, friendly, interesting, um, open-minded on most topics, but of course, people have been indoctrinated by a, a, you know state censorship and, and a lack of access to the broader kind of market of ideas. Um, but yeah, that's the one place I would say that has surprised me most. Interesting. What about lessons that you've taken from this?
0: I'm aware that it's always difficult to kind of synthesize something that you've been doing for a decade and a half. But if there was a bunch of insights that you think that you've gained, or the ones that you find most valuable that you think other people should really take to heart certainly seems like one of them is that most of the world is quite warm and welcoming and friendly and not hostile. I'm going to guess that that might be be something.
1: Yeah, that's definitely uh, pretty much the default wherever I've been in the world is for people, normal people. Authorities are often a slightly different case, but, um, normal people just want to help out really. Um, I, it probably helps that I have often traveled in quite a vulnerable manner without, um, uh, sort of shows of visible wealth for example you know i've basically never had had anything worth robbing certainly not while traveling traveling um but i mean i suppose the main thing which is really hard to to phrase without sounding trite or cliche but it's cliche for a reason is that you i mean it makes you sound like some sort of um motivational speaker but most people are a lot more capable than they think they if you set your sights a bit higher than you expect then you will probably rise up to meet them and if you don't you will at least rise up to you know higher than you'd expect and failing well you know giving something a go not completing it but having done better than you ever imagined you could is really really valuable now none of that is a secret and there are many, many people who charge many, many dollars or pounds out there to uh, to tell you that. But it's quite a straightforward truth. Uh, and just making that first step, getting out your door, whether literally or metaphorically, is is the simple key to that. Just doing something, starting something, and uh, most people will be surprised by what they manage to uh, to pull off.
0: It's strange because there's that the matthew principle to those who have more uh, those who have everything more will be given to those who have nothing more will be taken and you start to see in the world people uh, diverge into more of what it is that they're doing at the moment and it's the inertia it's the getting out of the door it's the beginning the first step it's committing to doing the thing where almost everybody gets stuck because once you start to do the thing Not doing the thing takes more energy than continuing to do the thing. It's the change. I remember I was learning about this guy. I think he maybe swam somewhere to the Bahamas, some insane route that he'd done, and he had to go there and back. And he said that he wasn't emotional. He'd nearly died, and there was all swells and all sorts of chaos had ensued. And the only time that he ever really felt emotion, he said, was when he got to land. And it was because of the deceleration from... what he'd felt to what he was feeling now. And I think that that's kind of true just generally for when we're trying to make changes. Changes, right? It's not continuing to do the thing. If you're getting up on time and going to the gym and you've got healthy relationships and your food is okay and you're not an alcoholic, it that is what you tend to continue doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, one way of putting it, I suppose, is that once you're pressurized, for want of a better term, uh, the only thing that's sort of shocking or jarring is depressurization or decompression rather. Um, you know once you once you've got those wheels rolling stopping is harder than than just rolling with it i agree
0: charlie walker ladies and gentlemen if people want to keep up to date oh actually what are you doing next tell us what um, what's, what's up next
1: for you well i'm i've just started work on a book about this experience in russia but um you know don't hold your breath watch this space it'll that'll be a while uh, I've got a few ideas bouncing around at the moment for what journey will be next, but uh, I haven't decided on anything yet. So I'm not going to uh, make any, um, loud boasts that I will then feel forced to, uh, to stick to regardless of the viability of them. Um, so, uh, in the meantime, yeah, people can keep up with what I'm doing on, uh, Instagram at uh, CW explore. It's the same on Twitter at CW explore, my website, cwexplore.com. Uh, there's a couple of books i've written about my experiences which can be found on kindle and audible and uh my website amazon wherever um but uh yeah that's me for the time being and uh, i'm sure there'll be another journey before long charlie i appreciate you thanks mate my pleasure cheers